the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. If you Google demise of Detroit, Jarrell and I were just talking about this during the break. The photographs of the destruction of once was a great, proud, and glorious city is alarming. It is shocking. It is dismaying at so many levels. You know, the population of Detroit today is barely 702,000. At its peak, it was over a million, 900,000 strong. The number of vacant, dilapidated, empty buildings, the amount of erosion that has taken place to the heart of that city is startling. And oddly, as much as we look at Detroit and the demise of its architecture, it kind of sets up a visual picture of what's been going on in our nation's moral, familial, and spiritual infrastructure as well. You know, out here in California, we talk about how the West was won back in the 1800s. Now it seems as if so much of the West, collectively speaking, the Western world, is being lost. In fact, How the West Really Lost God is the title of a new book by best-selling author Mary Eberstadt. And Mary, thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. Mary, by the way, Senior Fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy, and um, we appreciate so much you taking a couple of moments to be with us. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me. Boy, this, this demise of what we used to know as our nation, and I think anybody who, who spends any time in God's Word and any time reading the newspaper uh, or watching the news has got to see it all around us, as much as we've seen the evidence of the horrific decay of what once was a, a great and proud city called Detroit. A lot of that's going on in the family and in, quite frankly, the church today in the West, too, isn't it? Well, it is. If you look at the news cycle just from the past couple of weeks and you see all of these horror stories, that's just the latest example of what I think speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know, well, what what happened to God? Uh, What happened to God-fearing people? And they are right to wonder that question, because if you look at statistics from Western Europe, for example, you see a sharp fall-off in uh, church attendance over the last few decades, In the United States, although it's more religious than Europe still, you see a rise in the number of people in their 20s who say that they are none of the above, no religious affiliation. So this idea of secularization or Christian decline, depending on how you want to put it, is real. Um, But the question is, what's causing it? Since the Enlightenment, we've had a secular answer to that question. And that is, well, you can expect Christianity to decline because 
it's what Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. It's a, a superstitious bundle of beliefs that will go away as people get more rational and more educated. And this is what a lot of sophisticated people think, including now. But this storyline isn't right, Craig. It doesn't hold up when you put it against the data. It's not the case that the better educated you are, the less likely you are to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the United States, uh, there's data that show the opposite, that if, as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, people are more likely to believe in God and to go to church. The same was true in Victorian London. That's another example I cite in the book. So it's not the case that education alone drives out God. And same with prosperity. It's not prosperity alone that drives out God. There are plenty of prosperous Christians all over the world. So something else is going on in Western secularization, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, because I think the answer amounts to two words, the family. Well, and let's talk about that, because there is sort of this chicken or egg, which came first scenario set up here. I mean, we certainly recognize that there has been a significant decline in, in faith, specifically Christianity uh, in the West. And I think logically we could conclude that as people are less inclined to follow a, a strict belief system that will dictate or somehow lend direction to their behavior concerning things such as uh, children outside of marriage, uh, divorce, uh, abortion, things of this sort, that there's certainly a a strong connection there. Uh, Then, too, I think we could also argue that there is a a sense of support between uh, the family and how that as the family falls apart, we're less inclined to go to church, we're not working Mm -hmm. together in, in kind of that harmonious unity anymore, that we're no longer then as actively participating in the church. So I guess it kind of comes down to which comes first. Does religious decline lead to the disintegration of the family? Does family decline lead to religious disintegration, or is it a bit of both? Well, I think it's both, but the point is that the conventional way of looking at this is to say, well, first comes religious decline as people sort of sit in the corner one by one and decide that they have a problem with this part of scripture or that part or that it's not reasonable to believe in the bible and then comes the decline of the family this is how conventional sociologists tell the story but my point is there's something else going on here which is that family decline encourages religious decline and let let me just give you a few examples of what i mean by that because there are things that everybody can understand so we live in a time when many millions of households don't have a dad in the home, for example. We've seen this incredible rise in um, fatherless households. Now, if you're the child of a household like that, I think you have to make an extra conceptual leap to understand this very basic Christian idea of God as a benevolent, loving father. Mm -hmm. Because if you've never known a benevolent, loving father, that's an idea that's foreign to you. So that's just one example of how the way we live now in fractured and atomistic families can put an extra barrier in between an individual and religious belief. None of that is to say that folks from broken homes can't become, you know, perfectly religious people, but it is to say we have new impediments to that leap that didn't used to exist. So similarly, the Christian story is saturated with family imagery and family ideas uh, from the get-go. I mean, this is a religion that starts with the, uh, the miraculous birth of a baby. 
we live in a world with falling birth rates and smaller families. Many people grow to adulthood without ever having held a baby or taken care of a baby. Don't you think that makes it a little bit more uh, exotic or foreign to think that you could have this religious story that begins with a baby? So these are just some examples of what in the book I refer to as the phenomenon that family illiteracy breeds religious illiteracy. So this is a two-way street. It's not just that religious decline leads to family decline. It's also that not living in extended natural families the way people have throughout history up until very recently puts new barriers in the way of religious belief. Well, most certainly so. I mean, you think, for example, about the redefining of the family unit these days, that, for example, where uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, mom and dad took you to church. We went together as a family and participated as a family in, in, uh, you know, religious services and so forth. I, I think you could argue today that, well, a lot of parents as a single parent would say, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm working two jobs and I got to raise five or six kids, whatever the number might be. And so uh, spending copious amount of times at church is oftentimes the furthest thing on their mind. So is it any wonder that they're, number one, not seeing the model the way God designed it? Number two, there's not a motivation that would set up the mentoring necessary that would do provide the role model to understand, hey, there's benefits to all of this. And when I grow up and someday have a family of my own, I wish to continue these self-same traditions. So is it any wonder that I think there's a very strong connectivity, as you're suggesting. Yes, and continuing those traditions is a big part of it. This is something else I talk about in the book. You know, a lot of people uh, say, well, it's not that God has disappeared from Western society. It's that people have gotten more spiritual. They're into different kinds of practices, New Age practices, etc. So they're still spiritual. They're still sort of religious. And I'm not saying they aren't, but what I am observing is that if you read the studies, you see that those are not people who pass down their faith to their children. Those kinds of things don't get transmitted through the generations, and part of the reason is that, for whatever reason, it is traditionally religious people who tend to have children in this country, and not just in this country, but across uh, Europe and Israel and uh, pretty much every place that it's been studied. For whatever reason, secular people have no families or small families. So what you see over time is that what gets passed down through families and families of size is traditional religion and not these variations. So non-traditional households, uh, you know, might go to church and regard themselves as Christians, but they're not likely to pass on the traditions of Christianity to their children and their grandchildren. And well, that's a really I, interesting phenomenon. And, and the other thing, too, we can make an interesting uh, contrast and comparison here with the rise of the spread of Islam around the world and seeing that largely most of that is happening, certainly not because of their effective evangelism tools, but rather because of the birth rate and the emphasis on the family, the family unit, and uh, procreating at large levels in order to increase the size and the influence and therefore the impact of Islam across the world. So they understand this, and this is something that for a long time, certainly in, in Western Europe, uh, with uh, emphasis on procreation, uh, within the church help grow the church's numbers as well. We're taking a look at a fascinating new book called How the West Really Lost God, 
Mary Eberstadt, best-selling authors with us today. Uh, the new book, by the way, published by Templeton Press, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through um, the usual suspects like Amazon.com. Mary, by the way, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're going to come back to more of this question as we talk about many of the things that have happened to undermine Christianity in the West, and most importantly, wrestles through the question, is there anything we can do to stop this decline, or is this something that's simply inevitable, as much as we might anticipate it, looking at the decline of what was happening to the Roman Empire, that eventually this is just the way things are going to be, do you think? Come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mary Eberstadt is with us tonight. We are talking about her new book, How the West Really Lost God. And, you know, we're seeing this strong connection with a lot of things, too, in terms of just the shift in our thinking, aren't we, Mary? I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the rise of things like moral relativism, secular humanism, things of this side, which, sort of, which always kind of tend to take all of the kind of one by one dismantling the foundations of our faith, don't they? Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that the new atheists occupied the public square for a while, and between them and what's been going on uh, in, in this administration, you could argue that um, Christians have been taking something of a rhetorical beating out there. Um, but that does not mean that all hope is lost, and that's actually part of why I wrote the book, because I think there are a lot of things going on that point the way to a religious and with it a family revival down the road. How do we go about affecting that? I mean, as much as we recognize that there is a significant atrophying going on of not only the spiritual strength of America, but the West in general, and I think it's fair to include Europe in this, uh, and then, too, the, the demise of the American family. We mentioned here at the start of our conversation, Mary, uh, the, such things as the high rate of abortion, divorce in our country, single parents. You know that 70% of the births in the city of Detroit today are all to unwedded mothers. So looking at this, what can we do to help stem the tide or reverse this slow apparent march toward the eventual destruction of Western society and civilization? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, Craig, why I'm an optimist about this. Um, first of all, in the book, the first thing I try to do is get rid of this idea that I think is the most prevalent idea uh, describing religious decline, this Enlightenment idea that Christianity's eventual demise is inevitable, that as people get smarter and richer, they will decide that they can jettison this thing. This is not what has happened. The data don't show it. The timeline doesn't show it. So it's really important to understand, first of all, that the idea of inevitable decline has been contradicted by the facts. That in itself is grounds for optimism, I think. The second thing I think is really interesting is the relationship between Christian decline and the welfare states of the West. For many decades now, we've had these gigantic welfare states telling us that they can be counted upon to act as family substitutes. If you remember the, the Julia video that was part of the re-election campaign of President Obama, that one about the young woman who is helped from cradle to grave by the welfare state, from daycare to old age, that's an example of what I'm talking about. This promise has been out there, but if we look at what the welfare states of the West 
uh, are doing now, if we even read the financial pages as, as laymen and laywomen, we see that these states are in incredible financial trouble. We see that the shrinking of the family and the fracturing of the family has put incredible burdens on the welfare state, picking up the pieces and bankrolling the fractured families of the West. And we see that down the road they are unsustainable because there are not enough taxpayers to go around. It's really as simple as that. It's more obvious in Western Europe than in America quite yet, but we are headed in the same direction just as we were headed in the same direction with rates of family fracture and rates of secularization. So the point is, when the welfare states of the West are revealed to be incapable of keeping the promises that they have made, people are going to do what people always do in times of adversity. They go home, they go to church, they look for those elemental organic connections of what's nearest to them. We saw this after 9-11, when many millions of people who had not been in church in a long time suddenly showed up and it was standing room only in the churches for uh, weeks and months after that event. I'm sure you remember that, too, because it was countrywide. Of course. That's an example of how real shocks to the societal system have a way of putting people back in touch with their roots. And for that reason, I think you can argue that down the road, out of the the uh, curtailing of the welfare state or a more realistic understanding of the welfare state, you can actually see the seeds of family and religious revival. Sadly, though, a lot of this comes on the heels, as you suggest, when we've gone through some sort of a major crisis that kind of pulls us together, causes us to reevaluate our priorities, rethink the direction of our lives. It happened, uh, certainly, Sandy Hook, it happened after 9-11. So at the end of the day, is it maybe things such as the current moral, political, economic crisis that, in a sense, might sadly create the groundwork for spiritual revival in the West? Yes, but I don't think it has to be catastrophic necessarily. Um, One of the things I I note with interest is that in 2008, during the uh, economic crash then, a couple of interesting things happened that weren't much talked about, but one was the, the return of adult children to the homes of their parents because they couldn't afford to move out on their own. To the extent that this was noticed, people thought it was a bad thing. Um, you know, that they should have had the money somehow to move out on their own. But I see a silver lining in that, which is the unintentional reinvigoration of the extended family. And I always talk about extended family, not nuclear family. Nuclear family is, a, I think, too constricting a term. I think it holds people to too, too strict a standard. But the extended family, the idea of a family that goes through the generations and is connected in all kinds of different ways... I think we did see the reinvigoration of that kind of family on account of the downturn in 2008. Also in 2008, the divorce rate dropped. Now, that's a really interesting thing. And divorce lawyers themselves said that they thought it dropped because adversity made people think twice about uh, something that's expensive and difficult like divorce. So... I do think also that over time people are rational creatures, that the the toll, the various kinds of tolls of the ways that we live now that are so different from the way our ancestors lived uh, will be taken account of. 
and that people of the future will have a more expansive understanding and a more appreciative understanding, perhaps, of the benefits of the extended family than we have today. You know, so I see all kinds of grounds for hope out there. It's always sad, though, when we have to um, realize what we have once we come close to losing it. Uh, but maybe, as you suggest, Mary, hopefully, as we kind of get the clarion call out there, the word of warning, call the attention to folks, that those that have an ear to hear, that can hear what the Lord is saying to his church, uh, can rise up and respond and help stem the tide. It's a fascinating read, and one I would recommend, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt is its author and our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, the book is published by Templeton, and you can get it online, uh, certainly through Amazon.com. Also, Mary has a website, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. It's also the title of the book. Easy to remember, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. And it is... uh, It's an important indictment, and I think one that we need to take to heart quite seriously. Our thanks to uh, Mary Eberstadt for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Of all of my trips overseas, I think the one that stands in my mind the clearest, and perhaps the most indelibly, was one of many trips into China, having an opportunity to meet a woman who at the time probably was 80, 82 years old. And I recall first being ushered into this small room that was a living room of hers um, in a fairly nondescript um, section of uh, Beijing of basically uh, large apartment buildings. And uh, as we sat down and began to uh, converse, I noticed that her hands were badly gnarled. Uh, reminiscent of somebody who perhaps has a a severe diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. You see people that have their hands that are so knotted up and crippled and almost to the point of being deformed. And that typically is a sign of the impact of rheumatoid arthritis. So with that assumption, we began our conversation. And as we visited, slowly the story came out that during the time of the um, revolution that took place in the 1960s, the so-called cultural revolution, where a Maoist came in and uh, decided that they were going to take everyone in the country that was educated, that he either had been a doctor, a professor, or a school teacher, put them all out into farmland so they could be re-educated through labor and essentially turn over running of the operation of the country to uneducated peasants, that in the middle of that cultural revolution, there was a major clash that Christians found themselves in the middle of. At the time, in communist China in the 1960s, um, organized prosecution of Christians was even more severe then than it is today, so much so that merely possessing a Bible could land you in jail. The story emerged of this woman that hearing that the Revolutionary Guard had been making their way through her block, she had a Bible. She, of course, was a Christian. She took that Bible, wrapped it in plastic, and buried it in the ashes of her fireplace where she did her cooking. Unfortunately, much to her chagrin, the communist authorities were far more thorough than she expected, and after a thorough search of her home, they eventually uncovered the Bible hidden in plastic in the ashes of the chimney. 
When they found it, she intervened and quickly snatched the Bible back out of their hands and said that this was the most important link she had to her relationship with God and to, by all means, please not take her Bible. Well, the revolutionary soldiers argued with her, and finally they said, Woman, you either give us that Bible or we will beat it out of your hands. And beat it, they did. In fact, the condition of her hands when we met her in her early 80s had nothing to do with rheumatoid arthritis. She was, in fact, perfectly healthy. The terrible deformity of her hands was because she vowed not to let loose of her most prized possession, God's Word. As a result, they took a club and so badly beat her hands that they were horrifically deformed even 40 years after this event took place. This story left an indelible impression upon me meeting her because her story, while seemingly unique to the Western ear, in fact is demonstrative of what is in many parts of the world normative Christianity. And normative by that I mean the sense of persecution that Christians face. In fact, in many parts of the world today, the model of Christianity that you will encounter, whether you're in parts of Africa or the Middle East or Asia, looks much like the conditions that Christians were facing in the first century church, being persecuted simply because you name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Some would argue that today there is seemingly a systematic global war on Christians, though it's not often talked about in the mainstream media. You won't hear it discussed on the 6 o'clock news. It won't be the topic of discussion around the water cooler tomorrow morning, and yet it happens. It is happening multiple times per day in upwards of what some report to be almost 130 nations across the world. Joining me tonight is senior Vatican analyst for CNN and celebrated author John Allen, who's penned a new book called The Global War on Christians. John, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you. We'll see if we can avoid some of those nettlesome, erroneous errors. Yes, <laughs> indeed. We'll just keep our facts factual tonight. Yeah. John, one of the big facts that you share inside the pages of this new book is the fact that there is an unprecedented level of, I guess, systematic in some levels, in some ways, certainly systematic by that, meaning that it is either an institutional attack on the rights and religious freedoms of Christians by governments, in the case of communist China or Vietnam. In other cases, Christians falling victim and uh, becoming uh, on the receiving side of persecution simply because they are Christians and not of some other religion. Uh, For example, uh, what happens to people who convert from Islam to Christianity in countries like Saudi Arabia and others. Your book essentially takes us through every part of planet Earth and is kind of a glimpse into what is sadly a best-kept secret, and that is just how widespread the attack on Christians in the world today is. Yeah, that's right, Craig. I mean, I think our media does a creditable job of bringing isolated and scattered episodes of anti-Christian violence to us. I mean, you know, if if a church is bombed in Pakistan, or if Christians are brutalized in Nigeria by the Boko Haram, we might hear about it. But what is never supplied uh, in those reports is the context. And the context is... These are not simply isolated incidents. These are part of a a broad global pattern. Now, I mean, to be clear, Christians are not the only group out there whose whose rights are threatened, but I I think they are the group whose story is least told. 
Uh, and they are those, statistically speaking, who are most often in the firing line. I mean, the, the estimate, uh, the low-end estimate for the number of Christians killed every year around the world for their faith is 9,000. The high-end estimate is 100,000, which means somewhere between 1 and 11 Christians are being killed every hour of every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This is a global pandemic. This global pandemic, of course, um is not altogether under wraps. We know that annually the U.S. State Department puts out a report on religious persecution around the globe. Sadly, five of the top uh, ten biggest um, offenders in this arena also happen to be some of the top five U.S. trade partners. Uh, countries like uh, Communist China, for example, where uh, religious persecution there is not necessarily at the hands of, of fellow Chinese as much as it is uh, systematic and organized by the state. How widespread is this sort of institutionalized level of persecution against Christians? Well, it's sort of a bewildering cocktail of forces out there that, that put Christians in harm's way. I mean, ranging from various forms of religious radicalism, not just Muslim radicalism, by the way, uh, but in India, there was a rising tide of anti-Christian hatred being f- fueled by uh, radical Hinduism. Uh, in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, we're talking about radical Buddhism, but you also have to throw into the mix state-sponsored anti-Christian hostility. Uh, And, of course, China would be the leading example, but not the only one. You could also look to to states such as North Korea, uh, Eritrea, Belarusia. I mean, basically, any place there's a police state that sees religious minorities as a threat to its hold on power. Uh, You also have to throw into the mix uh, corporate interests in some parts of the world that don't like the stands that Christians take in defense of social justice. Uh, drug gangs around the world that don't like the, the stands Christian ta- Christians take against the drug trade. I mean, the, the list of, of potential oppressors uh, of Christians and other minority groups uh, is depressingly long, Craig. And sadly, for many of us in the West, as I say, and you pointed this out uh, throughout the book, The Global War on Christians, not that it never gets reported, but it's typically underreported or not contextualized. Uh, for example, I had a trip many years ago, first one into Indonesia, and we were treated to tours of burned-out sections, literally block after block after block of homes and businesses that had been destroyed, and we were told that it had been part of a 1993 through 95 purge of Christians, my militant Muslims there, who were um, big supporters of the Suwarto regime. And this group of probably 15 journalists, we looked at each other and said, now, wait a minute, why don't I recall hearing anything about this? Well, the fact of the matter was that it was very well kept under wrap and apparently wasn't exciting enough to be covered by mainstream global news sources, and so therefore remained a very quiet secret, a secret to everyone, except, of course, the families of those in Indonesia that lost their lives. This kind of a story repeated over and over and over again. Why is it that we don't hear more about this? We'll get into that part of the story. John Allen Jr. with us tonight. His book is called the Global War on Christians, dispatches from the front lines of anti-Christian persecution. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
If the statistics are to be believed, and there's no reason to doubt them, 80% of violations of religious freedom today are directed towards Christians. And yet, ironically, while it captures the news once in a while, as our guest today, John Allen, suggests, if it's a major firebombing of a church in Pakistan that kills upwards of 100 people, there's a chance that might make it to the news. But for the most part, a lot of these stories simply go without ever being covered or talked about in the West. Now, the fact that two-thirds of the world's 2.3 billion Christians live outside of the West. I suppose that says something, John, for those of us in the West. In other words, if it doesn't affect us or it doesn't affect me, it probably isn't important. Well, I think that's part of the picture. I think another part of the picture, Craig, in terms of why persecution of Christians struggles to to sort of break through the noise, uh, and and you and I are both media people. I mean, we understand the power of narratives in, in shaping the way the media approaches a story. The narrative about Christianity in the West, uh, which is badly outdated, but but still around, uh, is that Christianity is this big, you know, massively powerful, wealthy, influential social institution, which makes it very difficult for a lot of people in our business to get their minds around the idea that Christians could actually be the victims of persecution. But as you indicate, that doesn't do justice to where Christians are today. Two-thirds of them, as you say, live outside the West. A solid majority of them are impoverished, living below the poverty line, hundreds of millions of them in extreme poverty. They are often also members of ethnic, linguistic, and cultural minorities, so they're doubly or triply at risk, and they often live in some pretty bad neighborhoods. Uh, you add all that up, it's no surprise that Christians often find themselves in harm's way. So what I think what we have to do is we have to change the narrative about who Christians today are and about where they are. Let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, Again, you know, uh, I think from sort of historical Western uh, Christian viewpoint, we think of the the roots that Christianity in the United States, for example, has coming from Europe. And we see Europe and North America as kind of the two um, strongest regions of the world that enjoy some of the largest populations of Christians. That, in fact, is a dynamic that has been changing. If we look at parts of China, we mentioned earlier, and Africa, they've got some of the highest growth rates of Christianity. In fact, if the government statistics are to be believed, in a place like communist China, more than 5,000 people a day come to the saving knowledge of Christ. That's a pretty significant number. And yet, I think you're right. Part of the problem is we don't really understand who the profile of today's Christian is. Well, that's right. We have a kind of mindset about Christianity that is sort of stuck somewhere in the in the 18th century. Uh, I mean, the, the truth is, I mean, China, you're quite right, uh, is a phenomenal growth story for Christianity. I mean, the, in 1949, at the time of the Communist takeover, which was the last year that the, there was a national census that included religion, there were fewer than a million Christians in China. Uh, the estimate was about 750,000. Today, the kind of mid-range estimate is that there are 100 million. I mean, that's an absolutely astronomic explosion of Christianity. In fact, some projections are that by the middle of the 21st century, China will be perhaps the largest Christian nation on Earth, if not certainly in the top three. And, of course, the irony there is that those are largely government numbers. They tend to always downplay these things. And, you know, when it comes to the largest portion of the population of the church there, the bulk of it is underground. I mean, they don't recognize the papacy. They don't recognize um, evangelical Christianity there. And so imagine if you were able to take a head count of the, the church, both above ground and underground, how how staggering those numbers might look? Yeah, 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and you mentioned Sub-Saharan Africa. Christianity in Sub-Saharan Africa in just the second half of the 20th century uh, had a growth rate of 6,708%. I mean, almost 7,000%. I mean, you know, I, I don't care what line of work you're in. I mean, if you've got a 7,000% growth rate, that ain't too bad. You know, I mean, Africa has become the single great, single most uh, site of the most explosive growth of Christianity anywhere in the world. Now, you know, as Christians, we would rejoice in all of that, but, but the truth of it is, Christianity is growing precisely in those places where it is most oppressed. And, of course, those two things are not unrelated. I mean, the, the ancient line from Tertullian that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the faith, that's as true in the 21st century as it was in the 2nd. Uh, but it also means that an increasing share of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are in harm's way, and they need our solidarity. Is part of the issue here, too, John, perhaps, that, uh, and, I, and I mean this slightly facetious and yet at the core, it's probably true, that these areas that are experiencing some of the most phenomenal <coughs> pardon me, growth are, are in badly need of a public relations firm? I mean, for example, the Church of Scientology, they would, they would like you to believe that they have millions of adherents around the globe when it, it, it's more like in the hundreds of thousands, and yet it's all generally about how you tell the story. The problem is that there's no real mouthpiece, so to speak, on behalf of the persecuted church in sub-Saharan Africa or in places like communist China. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that those natural mouthpieces that we do have tend to have a built-in bias for telling only part of the story. I mean, the political right in the United States, for example, will often jump all over the persecution of Christians uh, in Muslim countries because it serves their foreign policy agenda, but they go strangely quiet when it comes to the fate of Palestinian Christianity inside Israel. Meanwhile, the political left uh, will play up the fate of Palestinian Christians, but they don't want to talk about what's going on, say, in Venezuela or in other countries in Cuba, uh, other countries that have leftist governments. So both of the, the factions that tend to dominate public conversation in the United States tell us only part of the story. Well, and we ourselves have been... Christian persecution, I try to puncture... Uh, is that it somehow that raising this issue somehow benefits either the, the left or the right. The truth is, persecution of Christians is an equal opportunity employer. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the problem here, too, I think, John, is the fact that we ourselves... Uh, as a nation, have also been contributory to this problem. I mean, for example, with, with great uh, pomp and circumstance, we, we applauded the ouster of Hosni Mubarak of uh, Egypt, and yet we've spent little time focusing on the plight of Coptic Christians there uh, who are being persecuted in a very wholesale fashion. Then, of course, there's the great march on um, uh, Iraq, and uh, I, I would defy anybody to be able to put together a million Christians anywhere in the nation of Iraq today, that they've all been pretty much eradicated and have run to other uh, neighboring countries because, at least under Saddam Hussein, while he was certainly not a nice guy, uh, was a secularist and largely left the, the church in Iraq alone. That has not been the case since the so-called regime change. Well, that's absolutely right. And if you talk to Syrian Christians today, they will tell you that they are terrified that exactly the same thing is going to happen to them. That is, a police state is going to fall under Western pressure. What's going to follow will be chaos, in which all minorities will be at risk, but in the front lines of those at risk will be Christians who will be carrying bullseyes around on their backs. And in one of the things that I, one of the arguments I try to make in this book, 
when the question comes up, what can we do to help these persecuted Christians? One thing we can do is make sure that their voices are heard in our foreign policy debates. Before we drop bombs someplace, we might want to ask the people who have to live in that neighborhood, and in particular the Christians, what the consequences of doing so are going to be. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that to, to erase the political blind spot, and we'll talk about that a bit more when we come after uh, come back after a timeout, but, you know, it, it's been interesting that, uh, for example, we will look at a country, a major oil trading partner like Saudi Arabia, and we are quick to criticize them um, for their treatment of women's rights over there, and yet we are hard-pressed to say anything about the way they treat Christians in Saudi Arabia. We'll talk a bit more about that political blind spot and what we can do to help better eradicate it. Our visit today is with best-selling author John Allen. His new book, by the way, An Absolute Page-Turner. And if this is a topic that at all touches your heart, and I certainly hope that it is, certainly down through the years we've talked about this topic almost ad nauseum because I believe it's so critically important, I want to urge you to get a copy of John's new book. It is published by Image Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those still exist somewhere, don't they? Or through Amazon.com. Let's take a quick time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. John Allen, The Global War on Christians.